Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Neighbor Samson's son, Thomas, was small for his age. He was frail and almost always ill. His hair was baby fine, and his arms wobbled when he carried a hoe. Other children in the village pestered him, even young ones that were half his age and just his size. I had felt the sting of harsh words too, but they never fixated on me like they did on Thomas. I was a strange girl, yes, but he was a weak boy, and that crime was far greater. When I was 12, I had amassed quite an impressive collection of interesting rocks. On occasional lazy afternoons when Mama had no chores for me, I would collect the rocks in my apron and carry them to the stream near neighbor Samson's tool shed. I would squat by the water's edge and carefully wash the rocks, sorting them by size and beauty, and leaving them to dry on the grass, their luster fading in the sun. One afternoon, I was admiring my rocks and imagining that I was so small that I could live inside a geode when I was startled out of my reverie by clumsy footsteps. I turned to find Thomas, lugging an empty pail towards the stream. I felt a little disgusted watching him struggle. I wondered how he would fare with a pail full of water trudging uphill when the flimsy, empty pail seemed too cumbersome. He knelt downstream from me and filled the pail with water and took in my rock collection through the corner of his eye. He smiled shyly and complimented my large blue agate, his eyes never meeting mine. No one had cared to say anything nice about my rocks before, and I felt quite pleased. I asked if he was a rock collector, and he said he was not. I sighed and began attending to my rocks again. But he hurriedly mentioned that behind the schoolhouse there were some pretty striped rocks that I could add to my collection and that he could show me at school. I nodded, excited for the prospect. He hauled up his full pail, and a twig snapped behind us. Other children from the village appeared, circling us. A tall boy, James, stepped forward, his eyes on Thomas. Hannah, a girl with large teeth and a loud voice jeered that Thomas's mother was ashamed of his weak stature, that she complained about him to her mother at council meetings. James shoved Thomas and he dropped his pail, and my first thought was that Thomas was lucky it did not tip over. Then James kicked the pail, and the water spilled over the smaller boy's shoes and puddled around his feet. Thomas scurried to retrieve the pail, but an apple pelted him in the shoulder and he stumbled backwards landing on his bottom in the puddle. I gasped, and the children turned their eyes to me as if they were just realizing I was there. They looked at me expectantly, and I looked into Thomas's eyes for the first time. His eyes, dead with resignation, flickered with something. Hope? James stepped towards me with a cruel sneer. Before he could step closer, I picked up a rock and threw it. The blue agate sailed through the air and hit Thomas in his small jaw. He fell backward 
and did not move. The children cheered, and I stared at Thomas, my stomach sick. They ran up the hill, giggling about plans to gorge on biscuits, and Thomas lay flat in the mud. I took a tentative step towards him, an apology on my tongue and dread in my belly. He cried out once and sat up abruptly, clutching his jaw with one hand, blood spilling out of his mouth onto his fingers. He attempted to stand, but slipped in the mud and fell down again. I rushed forward to help, but he wrenched himself out of my grasp, finally getting to his feet. Without looking my way, he ran up the hill to his home with a wet, muddy bottom. His dented pail sat on its side in the mud. The next morning, Thomas's mother stopped by, asking if we had seen him. We had not. The council organized a search, and everyone searched, although I suspect not very hard, for a whole day. We did not find him. The next day, I spied Thomas's mother moving boxes into their shed, and she looked at me, with her empty eyes and her mouth in a hard line, and I tasted bile and ran all the way home and slammed the door. From then on, no one spoke of Thomas, and it was almost as if he never existed. A year later, Thomas's mother gave birth to a baby boy, and neighbor Samson was very proud of how big and strapping his son was, and they seemed happier than before their first try had disappeared in the night. I stopped collecting rocks, and soon after that, I only remembered the sound of the blue agate hitting Thomas's cheek on nights when I couldn't sleep, and eventually, I didn't think of it at all. My mind has been circling memories I know will be painful to touch. And yet, I keep reaching for the flame, knowing it will burn me. That day in Haven, when everything changed, I took my afternoon tea like I always did. And it was sweeter than Mama usually makes it, but like I said, I was feeling different and more grown up and attributed the cloying flavor to my newly adult taste buds. In my memory, the house was too quiet. Perhaps I'm only remembering it that way because I know what happened next. Mama's parlor door was open, and the white linen curtains swayed in the wind. The air smelled like sage, sweetened by the sunshine. My stomach gurgled, and I felt I should lie down. I approached the stairs, but something through the parlor doorway caught my eye. A shape where it should not have been. Mama, on the ground, staring at the ceiling. I ran to her on a tilting floor, ringing in my ears and invisible hands around my throat. This could not be. Something was wrong. Why was she on the floor? There was so much blood on the floor. She's so small. Her body is so small, too small for all that blood. Clouds pressed at the corners of my eyes, and I barely saw the room. Her messy desk, bottles on the floor. I could not breathe. Something was wrong with the air, and I could not catch my breath. The pressure on my throat increased, and I did the only thing I could think to. I held her to me. I held her to me. I held her to me. Underwater voices murmured nearby. I was lying on something hard. I was thirsty. 
I smelled like sick and sweat. I recognized Elder Rice's voice. She's just a girl, he was saying. I sat up stiffly from my cot and the voices hushed. I was in a cell. Members of the council were gathered outside my cell, and they looked at me warily. I weakly asked for water, and Elder Rice approached with a mug. He squatted expectantly outside of the bars. I crawled to him, and he tipped the mug to my lips. I drank in thirsty gulps, rivulets of water running down the sides of my face and onto my dress. I asked him, Is Mama... And he hushed me. You do not know what you were doing, child. He said. His voice was warm, understanding. My mind was completely blank. What I was doing. He sighed and searched my face with sorrowful eyes. The others peered at me from over his shoulder. A flash of memory. Mama's glassy eyes. The coppery smell of blood. My stomach heaved and I turned from him. An elder yelled, murderous, and the only thing I could think was that his mouth sounded sticky and that he should drink some water. Elder Rice shushed the men. Then he turned and it was all of their eyes watching me. Disappointed, but in no hurry. Waiting for me to speak and prove them correct. They could not mean this. That I had been the one. That I had... killed her. I didn't do it! I shouted over the blood rushing in my ears, and my anger proved them right. Murmurs of a hanging buzzed, but Elder Rice waved them off. There will be a trial, he reminded all of us. We shall not sentence her now. But I was exiled the moment I found her. Time has passed. The road has been moving beneath my feet. I do not know how many days it has been since I left Haven. I do not know how far I have traveled. I cling to the desire to return to Haven. I had hoped that a night's sleep would align recent events into some kind of sense, but it did not. When the sun rose yesterday, I returned to the road, my legs feeling strong. My pack was starting to get light and much of my dried meat was gone. Ahead of me lay a valley, at its center, small and golden and full of hope, was a clearing, a town it looked like. I hastened my steps and ignored the rubbing of my pack straps on my raw shoulders. Weeks ago, I would have been too scared to continue, but I'd seen things that were new and that had scared me, but I survived. I could do that again, I hoped. And what other choice did I have? I could starve hiding in the woods and never make it back to Haven. Or I could go into this place, which was likely as terrifying as the others, and give myself a chance to keep going. As I neared the edge of the town, I scanned my surroundings. I'd learned to be more alert, and I readied myself to leave if I saw any threat. The town was quiet. Dusty gray wood buildings lined a dusty road. Empty hitching posts waited for horses I did not have. A barber pole sat still, the windows behind it dark. I pressed my face to the glass and saw chairs covered in cloth, a layer of filth on the shelves. 
I continued to a building with a large sign. Saloon. The swinging doors creaked when I walked through. I peered into the blackness, and a voice called out. Petey ain't here. You're looking for him. I squinted into the dark and replied that I was not, but could I please have some water or work for some food? It was quiet, and then... Like I said, they ain't here. It's not my place. So, you best keep moving. A shadow moved, and I heard a door close. There was no reply to anything else I said. I have to admit that I did search for food, but found nothing. I suppose that would be stealing if I did take something. But at this point, I was already damned. I left and continued to the next building. The sign said in lush violet script, The Rose Courts. Again, it was dark. Stillness took almost solid form. The red velvet settees and purple gauzy curtains waited under a layer of dust. I searched again, but found nothing. I stepped outside, shielding my eyes from the unforgiving sun. A voice called from across the way. I told you they're all gone. Rose ain't there neither. A squirrely-looking old man peered at me from the saloon's swinging doors. Rose and the girls disappeared. Petey and Garrison, too. With them gone, weren't nothing to do, so the town cleared out quick. Only souls left is Mr. Waterman, but... He ain't never one for gambling nor women, so I suppose he didn't mind. He motioned to a house at the end of the street. It shimmered in the heat. The sun had become oppressive. The sky was so blue and still and large, it lay on the flat land like a heavy blanket. An imposing white house scraped defiantly at the sky. Large white columns, tall black double doors, no vegetation. The house was clean, which was remarkable, seeing as, like everything else in this town, I was covered in dust, and I suspected I was there for less time than that house. I turned back to respond to the old man, but he was gone. The house seemed like the only place where people were, so that was where to go. I would speak to this Mr. Waterman. As I stepped through the front gate, I felt a little quirk in my gut, but I steeled myself and closed the gate behind me. I knocked on the door, and an older man in a black suit answered. The inside of the house was so dark, and the outside so bright, I was straining to see through the door. I asked if he was Mr. Waterman, and he said that Mr. Waterman was not expecting guests, so I should please leave. I asked again if I could come in, could I perhaps trade something for food? The old man shook his head, and I struggled to see past him into the house. I smelled food, and I was determined not to be hungry anymore. Also, I was being brave. A rich voice called from behind the old man. Please, come in. Guests are welcome at any time, young lady. The old man stared at me hard and did not move. Then, as if yanked by a string, he jerked back and gestured for me to enter. I walked slowly past him. The house felt much cooler than outside, and I guessed that that was why Mr. Waterman kept the house so dark. As my eyes adjusted, I took in the room. A very handsome white-haired older man, wearing a suit of all white, sat in a large armchair, a book propped open on his lap. 
the walls were lined with books. Various animals, probably shot in their sleep, were posed in threatening stances. This was probably the most fearsome they ever looked, and they never even knew it. A giant brown bear loomed behind the man, its paw inches from his shoulder. It was almost as if they were reading together, or that the man was about to be murdered. The chair across from him was a deep blue, mirroring the plumage of a grand stuffed bird perched above it. Its tail feathers were unlike anything I had ever seen. They curved down in a gleaming arc, brushing the seat of the chair, feet below. Close that door, Peterson. You're letting in the devil's breath, he said calmly. I heard the door shut behind me and, indeed, the house became even cooler. The sweat on my face felt cold, and I suppressed a shiver. This man was maybe older than his servant, but he had aged gracefully. Blinking away the sun from outside, I struggled to meet his gaze. He looked like a painting, sitting in that beautiful armchair with that book and the bear and his clean hands. He gently closed the book and stood to greet me. He bowed politely. I curtsied clumsily and smiled, my eyes downcast. I am Mr. Waterman, as you have likely assumed, he said, and he smiled briefly, almost like he was sharing a secret. He motioned to the chair across from him. You'd like some refreshment? Something cold to drink? I nodded gratefully and surveyed the chair. I looked to him, but he was already seated, watching me expectantly. I awkwardly brushed the feathers to the side and sat, holding my bag in my lap. The feathers tickled the side of my face, but I pretended I didn't mind. I looked down at my dress and cringed with the realization of how dirty I was, how I must have looked to him. He motioned to Peterson, and I surreptitiously tried to brush some of my dust off of the armrest. You look like you've come a long way, like you did something sinful, and it nips at your heels no matter how far you run. He said it like he knew me, like he thought he was looking right through me and already knew the answers to my problems. It made me sick. And that was the whole frustration, wasn't it? Everyone thinking I was running away when I did nothing wrong. I was coming back to Haven to do right. I clenched my fists and picked at a scab on my knuckle. Mr. Waterman watched in mild disgust. The feather at my cheek was itching fiercely and I picked at my scab more furiously. This Mr. Waterman seemed like a man of status in this town. He had servants and clean fingernails and dead animals in his big house, and I was a young woman alone and dirty and exiled with a knapsack on her knee. But my anger distilled us down to just two people, and one of us was making incorrect assumptions about the other. I opened my mouth to set the record straight, but before a word could come out, a tray with iced tea materialized before me. A hand, pale white, gripped the tray. Metal screws shone at the sides of the wrist, and a brown, rust-colored substance oozed where the screws met the skin. Thin wires connected the screws to the dark ceiling, and above, shadowy gears and levers, whirring silently. Peterson stared at me, eyes piercing mine, wires emerging from his shoulders and waist to meet the darkness above. He lurched forward, 
and the wires strained taut at his wrists, at his shoulders. The gears above him groaned. Something tore and popped, and the brown substance oozed out, chased by deep red. Blood. The blood dripped onto my lap, thick like gravy, reeking of infection. Mr. Waterman stood, clutching his book. Peterson, he yelled, but he did not approach. Peterson leaned close to me. I recoiled and gripped the arms of my chair. He breathed ragged, foul puffs of breath, suffocating me. His eyes roved my face wildly. The whites of his eyes were gelatinous and yellow and looked as if pressing a finger to them would leave a lasting indent. I gasped and leaned back as far as I could, my back pressed hard against the high back of the chair. Thick, ropey spittle dribbled out of his mouth, and when he spoke, it flecked onto my face and into my mouth. It tasted like a rotten tooth. My gut seized violently. Get out of here, he wheezed, and then he was yanked back. Across the room, Mr. Waterman's eyes burned brightly, and he clutched his book. Peterson's feet were nailed to a small platform, which wheeled him away into a back room along an almost hidden track on the floor. Greasy smears of blood marked his trail. I tried to jump up, to wipe my tongue with the sleeves of my dress, to spit on the floor and vomit and cry, but my wrists and ankles were pinned to the chair by large metal cuffs. My stomach lurched, and I leaned over the arm of the chair. Hot, sour bile spurted out of my mouth onto the cool wood floor. I heaved until there was no more, and heaved more after that. Vomit dripped from my chin to the floor in loud, sticky splats. I wiped my face on the shoulder of my dress the best I could, panting. I looked to my host in despair, but not surprise. How could I have been so stupid? So trusting? Because his suit was clean? When had a clean suit ever protected me? Mr. Waterman smiled quickly, bitterly. It's only when he struggles that he bleeds. His voice was laced with annoyance. His eyes scanned me, as if searching for my dysfunction. I screamed for him to let me go, but he turned his back and brought his hand to his chin thoughtfully. I begged and cried. I made promises that men always sought, but he waved his hand over his shoulder at me dismissively. I must decide where you go, he muttered. He marched over to me and draped a hand in a white silk handkerchief he pulled from his jacket. He grabbed my chin with it, forcing my gaze to his. His eyes raked my face, his upper lip curling. Too old to be Rose's daughter. Perhaps it's time Mr. Garrison took a wife. He nodded briskly as if that settled it. To my horror, my chair lurched and a track revealed itself on the floor. I shrieked and struggled against my restraints ineffectually, and the chair started its stuttery journey down the hall and away from Mr. Waterman, who had turned from me and was already focused on another task. The chair and I tottered down the hall, straight into a set of double doors. My knees and toes bashed into the doors and they swung open. 
It spun me to a screeching stop, and I was left breathless and lightheaded, my legs throbbing. I was in a bathroom, powder blue, spotless. The counter was lined with tubes and jars. A large blue clawfoot tub lurked in the corner. A robin's egg armoire loomed behind me. I was most afraid of the mirror. I had not seen myself since I had left Haven. Mr. Waterman's reaction made me fear the worst. I hesitantly dragged my eyes to the woman in the mirror. A haunted face stared back at me. My golden brown skin was stretched taut over my cheeks. My features were sharper than I remembered. I was afraid to look into my own eyes. Just as I summoned the courage, the ceiling above me whirred ominously. A woman burst through the doors, whisked inside by the wires tethering her to the ceiling. Her brown hair was pinned in a modest bun, and her pink dress was high-necked and matronly. Her mouth was drawn in a grim line. As the platform dragged her closer, I saw she was not much older than I was. Her skin was sallow and greenish. She grabbed the jars and tubes and began emptying them into the tub. She turned the taps and water rushed into the tub, a medicinal-smelling steam billowed to the ceiling. What is that? What are you going to do to me? I cried. I repeated the words over and over, and she did not respond, keeping her gaze down. She started towards me, her arms outstretched. I repeated my mantra with renewed fervor, and she scrunched her eyes shut. She reached under my chair, and the cuffs at my wrists and ankles opened. I attempted to escape, but her hands were around my upper arms, and she was so strong. This will be easier if you just let it happen, she muttered, and her breath smelled like after that cow lost her calf in the barn and neighbor Isaiah was too sad to clean it up for days. I recoiled and thrashed, but she had me in her grip and into the tub I went. The water burned from the temperature and the salts she used. I was dunked under, and her hands scrubbed and pulled at my hair. I gasped and floundered, swallowing hot, bitter water. She flipped me over, and my forehead banged on the bottom of the tub, and I saw white. And I swallowed another gulp of the bath water, now brown with the dirt I had brought into Mr. Waterman's home. Quick hands disposed of my dress and boots, and I inhaled more gritty water and brief bits of air. And my pack was gone, and just as I thought I couldn't stand it any longer, I was out of the bath and wrapped in a scratchy blue towel. She moved away from me and blocked the door. She pointed at the armoire. I shook my head, not wanting whatever was in there. Her right arm pointed again, more forcefully. The other hand opened a cabinet behind her, revealing a rack of surgical tools. Her forehead beaded with sweat, and the wires quivered. Please, don't make me do this. She murmured, to me. The tools gleamed. With shaking legs, I approached the armoire. I pulled it open. Wedding dresses, at least 10 of them, with a row of empty hangers to the side. White satin slippers lined the bottom. I looked to the woman and she turned her face from me. I can't, I started and her left hand drifted to a particularly large blade. I quickly grabbed the first dress and put it on. 
It fit perfectly, and I looked beautiful. Of course it didn't. It hung on me loosely, and I looked nightmarish. My hair was plastered to my forehead and clung to my neck. My face was flushed deep red, and my forehead was swollen where I had bumped it in the tub. I apparently had cracked my brow against the porcelain, and a small rivulet of blood seeped into my eye. I blinked and looked to the woman, and she was staring at the blood. She looked almost... longing. Her body lurched forward, and she shoved me into the chair. I struggled again, but my wrists and ankles were clamped tightly. She slipped a pair of silk slippers on my feet like I was a child. Her hand clumsily smoothed my hair out of my face, and I saw that her eyes were wet. Then she grabbed my shoulder suddenly, the wires at her wrists twanging with the strain. Don't eat the food! And then the air was whooshed out of her. She was whisked out the doors, and I was alone. The chair shuddered. I moaned in dread. And we were out the doors, down the hall, and screeching to a stop in an enormous room. The walls were covered with enormous paintings depicting the creator's test, Temptation, her failure, repentance, exaltation. I remembered these moments being taught to us in school and feeling sick for weeks after seeing the repentance in our school books. The woman knelt in worship, her hands on the ground while crows picked at her back. The creator smiling benevolently, knowing that he would shower all of us in cleansing light as forgiveness that was supposed to be the divine message that we would all be bathed in his grace after all of the suffering but my mind always got stuck on the suffering part I'd be happy to give up exaltation if it meant crows wouldn't peck at my back there were about 20 chairs with an aisle down the middle white tapered candles lined the aisle a podium stood at the other side of the room behind it stood Mr. Waterman next to it stood a young man I did not recognize. People I did not know sat in the chairs. Peterson and the woman who bathed me sat closest to the podium. All of them but watermen were connected by wires to recesses in the shadowy ceiling. I felt sick. The room was silent. Then, music made me jump. A player piano plunked a somber tune. My chair started up the aisle. I screamed. I thrashed. The chair brought me closer to the podium, and I could see the young man more clearly. His jaw hung open, connected to the rest of his face with stringy, gray sinew. His eyes were gone. His teeth were brown, and several were missing. I grew silent, and then I heard his breathing. Ragged wheezing. He turned his head to me and his tongue rolled out of his mouth. It was white and looked dry. I screamed harder. My voice echoed off of the hard walls and no one moved. My chair kept moving. Finally, it sputtered to a stop in front of the podium and spun to face the young man. I continued screaming, my throat raw, and Mr. Waterman closed his eyes and brought a hand to the bridge of his nose, gripping his book with the other. He stepped quickly around the podium and slapped me sharply. I quieted, stars twinkling at the corners of my vision. 
He looked at me appraisingly. Rose's work was adequate. I looked to the woman who addressed me. Her eyes were on the floor. Mr. Waterman cleared his throat. The Creator brings us together on this day to complete Isaiah Garrison's repentance. Isaiah, you came to me a philanderer, a man tempted by the sins of the flesh. You were the first I brought to my flock. I kept you here, shielded you and all others from your temptations. It took a strong hand, but you will be delivered to the Creator clean and ready to receive the divine. Isaiah's sockets stared at me. A maggot burst from the skin of his cheek and inched down his face. I squirmed in the chair. Mr. Waterman continued. I have brought you a daughter of man. Let her sin fall away as she takes a new role. Wife. Mr. Waterman paused and surveyed the room. His chest puffed and his eyes shone with tears and I wanted to spit in his face. The Creator gives you this woman as a wife. Do you accept? Isaiah's head tipped forward. Mr. Waterman nodded and turned to me. The Creator offers you salvation. Do you take it? Before I could respond, he continued, then you are saved. The wires above Isaiah whipped and he lurched forward, his face descending onto mine. I turned my face and he fell into the crook of my neck, rasping in my ear. The impact of his cheek on mine burst his skin and maggots spilled out onto my neck and into my lap. They crawled on my skin, burrowed under the neck of my dress, seeking more dead flesh to consume. I squirmed and pulled at my restraints, feeling maggots burst under my neckline as I struggled. The wires yanked him back, and Mr. Waterman pulled a plate and a goblet from under the podium. And now you shall take of the Creator's blessing, clean of sin. He held out his arm. Two small cakes perched prettily on the plate. Isaiah grabbed one and tumbled towards me again. As appetizing as eating a little cake from the hand of a rotting man wasn't, the woman's words echoed in my ears. I clamped my mouth shut and the cake smeared all over my face. Mr. Waterman sighed impatiently. He walked around the podium again and grabbed the other cake and forced my mouth open. I did the only thing I could think to do. I jerked my head and his thumb slipped into my mouth. I bit down as hard as I could. Blood spurted down my throat and I felt his bones snap. I wrenched my head and spat. Mr. Waterman's thumb sailed out of my mouth and hit Isaiah in the chest. Mr. Waterman screamed and wrenched his hand away, stumbling backwards and falling into the audience. He knocked several people over and they made no move to get up. The book he always clutched tumbled out of his other hand and fell to the ground at Rose's feet. His hair was mussed, and his limbs were akimbo. In his struggle to stand, he kicked several wedding guests in the face and knocked over chairs and candles. Insanely, I laughed. He got to his feet and growled. You ungrateful bitch, he spat. He stumbled towards me and his hands closed around my neck. The twinkling stars in my eyes were back and a roaring grew in my ears. Dimly, I registered the crackling of fire and the twang of wires, and then a smash. And then my wrists and ankles were free. I pulled at Mr. Waterman's hands, but he would not let go, and it was difficult to gain purchase as his hands were so slippery with blood. I dug my thumb into his oozing stump, and he yelped and loosened his grip. 
and then he just stood there, staring at me. He dropped to his knees. Did that do it? Did I kill him? He fell forward, and a knife, the same one from the bathroom cabinet, curved out of his back. Rose sank to the floor, the wires at her joints slack, and Mr. Waterman's book lay open and its contents smashed at her feet, wires and metal shards everywhere. He was controlling us, she said unnecessarily. Then a roar, and I looked up. The paintings had caught a flame, and the fire was spreading quickly. I gasped and then coughed. We had to get out. The people in the room were still seated in their chairs or on the floor, examining their newly slack wires dimly. I grabbed Rose and tried to pull her to the door, but she resisted. You'll die, I pleaded. I think I already did. I don't remember, she said tonelessly, her eyes on the fire and the people around her, some already in flames. She turned her eyes to me and I saw that her face was scratched. Rust-colored blood oozed out and it stunk something fierce. Let us burn, she said, and stood and walked into the fire. I am ashamed to say I turned away. I turned away and I left them to die. Or I guess maybe they did already. But I sure as damnation didn't save them. None of them screamed as they burned. I made for the door, but before I left, I caught my reflection in a hallway mirror. I was covered in blood and grime. The bump on my head was a swollen goose egg. But my eyes were what shocked me. Once lightly praised as interesting for their amber color, they burned now with a fire that I felt in my chest. I wanted to survive. This was not a want like anything I had experienced. It was not a desire to collect rocks or even to go home to Haven. This was a raw need to survive that cut me deeply. A need that I felt, or rather that I was, because I knew that I should survive and that I should exist. Tears sprung to my eyes and I felt something like love. I wanted to protect this girl, and I would. Exile was written, performed, produced, and mixed by me, Kelly Nugent. The beautiful music that elevates this story to something I could have never imagined it could be was composed by the ever-talented Annalise Nelson. If you liked this show, please, please, please leave a kindly review on Apple Podcasts or tell your lover or friend or enemy about this show, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.